Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankleberg. This is Diana Dini. Hey, Diana. Um, one of the topics that we've been uh, bouncing around every now and then, and we were just chatting about it, and is. And I've learned the hard way just recently. If I don't hit record soon enough, then we chat for an hour and a half and have a good time and then nothing happens. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the topics that we've been talking about a little bit is that, you know, sometimes and I find it in, in quality and reliability and, and even in engineering in general, um, when everything goes well, um, everybody's like, oh, that's cool. And they move on to the next project. There's... You know, if there's a big disaster problem and all hands on deck and everybody's running around and then um, somebody gets a, you know, a certificate suitable for framing or gets a parking spot or something, they celebrate it. But it was kind of the mixed message. You celebrate the things that go wrong and the quick solution for everybody working overtime versus when you actually do a good job and the reliability program works well and the quality of the system works well and there's no disaster. Yeah, the the old hero thing, right? Yep, yep. If if we had done it well the first time, we probably wouldn't have needed a hero. That's right. Uh, but then we celebrate the hero after the firefighting is done, and hey, save the day. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's such a um, common uh, process I've seen in so many organizations, and it's it you know intuitively it makes sense that you've asked a lot of your team. And people stepped up and you want to celebrate that. Um, whereas we forget the quiet one. And it reminds me of it. It's a fairy tale or fable or something like that. If you throw a creature into boiling water, they try to get out real quick. Right. But if you put them in cool water and warm the water up slowly, they, they won't even struggle to get out. What what fairy tale is that? Well, it's probably a Grimm's fairy tale. <laughs> probably. <laughs> But there's this, yeah. um, you know, it's it's a s slow moving process, so it becomes hidden or unseen. And the idea is, is that, and I've been an advocate of this for years and years and years, is you've got to be very clear about, all right, what was the problem? What did you, what would, what, you, what was the solution? And then what difference did it make? How did it actually impact things, you know, financially, you know, the, so we worked on this project and it delivered on time and we didn't run over on the budget and our warranty was better than expected. And that saved us, you know, this plus this plus this plus this, and it was gazillions of dollars. But if, if you don't make it visible, it's, oh, that's the way it should be. And it's like, well, if we would have done this the way we used to do it, we would have had been late and over budget and warranty would be twice as much. And that would, a difference would be gazillions of dollars. Oh yeah. We did do something different. So it so sort of sounds like in order to not celebrate the firefighting and heroes, I mean, I mean, stuff does happen and you do, you do <laughs> want to recognize when the team does go above and beyond, yep. but it's looking at, it's intentionally looking at different metrics. Is that is that what you'd say? That instead of 
on time and out the door. It's we did these things and this is how much we saved right. from doing these things. Well, for example, um, I know Kirk and I talk about it a lot is, you know, trying to convince the team to do halt. And they say, well, of course it breaks. You're overstressing it. And relating that to, right, this is, it's a form of accelerated test. We have a failure mechanism that will occur in the field. It will take longer, but it will occur and impact warranty or customer satisfaction, right? And a common technique to convince people of that is take an existing product that has a field history and run halt on it and say, all right, here are the things that we find in the lab. And they go, oh, well, those are the top hitters that we have in the field. Well, now imagine that we had known that before we finished the design, and you designed them out, right? Now you can see the difference. And you have to kind of break it down to that level. Uh, in So if you introduce HALT or you do a great FMEA and they say, all right, well, we ended up fixing these 10 things that, you know, without the FMEA, we would have either found them late or not found them at all. And then it's, well, what fixing that one failure mechanism um because we suspected it would have impacted 25% of our products, right? Well, if we would have shipped, then what's the cost of 25% of our, product, of our products failing? You can calculate that. And that's what I mm. tend to do is, is create the connection of, you know, in this program, we did something different or we introduced something new or we focused on these areas versus these areas. And that makes a difference, and then you can quantify the value of those things and then make it visible. Um, and, I, and I remember my boss at Hewlett Packard, he made every single project we worked on. Um, it was, well, where's the value statement? And it was a one slide. What was the problem? What, 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 what did you do? You know, what, what input did you have into the solving that problem? And then what difference did it make? And then he wanted us to go to the client, and this has been internal to the company, but to the team and say, what difference did this make? And it was saved him time, uh, saved him money, reduced warranty, increased customer satisfaction or, or whatever, but would try to get it in their words, what difference did it make for them in a quantifiable way? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a pain, <laughs> but I also learned that it was extraordinarily valuable because he ended up at the end of the year with a slide deck that showed that we contributed like a hundred million dollars to the bottom line for the company over the year. And it's like, wow. you know, now that's, um, reliability engineers, we, we get into really particular and, you know, uh, finite and <laughs> I'm talking about the numbers and the mm -hmm. kind of equations that we run, like we're, we're really specific and we're careful about our assumptions and everything. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to reporting something like that, like how much should we save? Um, it doesn't have to be to the same nth degree because now we're talking more, it's more of sort of like an accounting kind of activity, right? <laughs> well, now all the accountants have just clicked us off because they track things to the penny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's that's more true. It's it's more like finance, not accounting. Where okay, it's yes. you know, so it's it, it's comparing what was the value of that investment. And so we invested in say doing an FMEA. And and I know you've run into this, Diana, where the team the director says, well you 
you're going to take eight of my engineers offline for, for half a day or a day. Mm-hmm. You know, I know how much that costs. What do I get for that? And you have to be able to answer that. And one of the best ways to do it is after the fact. And then go, you know, the last three times we did FMEAs, we found and identified six things that we went and addressed and they did not cause field failures, you know, or mm-hmm. they didn't delay the program or they didn't do, you know, whatever. But you can, hindsight's easy. If a couple months after the fact or a year after the fact, if you keep track of those things, you can quantify it and then use that as a a record to say, well, this is what we expect to save on the next one. And soon, sooner or later, that discussion becomes much, much easier. But when you're trying to propose it, you say, all right, if we don't do an FMEA, that means we're not prioritizing, right? And the mechanical team is prioritizing what they want, quality teams prioritizing what they want, and the software folks, we don't really know what they're doing. You know, we're all working at our local priorities. So let's put it all in one room and figure out as a team, what's the big hitters that we need to go solve. And that changes where the investment goes to have the best impact. And Mm -hmm. by connecting it to the finances of it, um, I find that that argument goes a lot easier with program directors and and engineer directors and stuff like that to people that understand that they have a limited budget and limited time frame to to make things happen. So you can prioritize so you get the best investment, return on investment. Yeah, and that has a lot to do with justifying your plan for reliability when you when you don't have the information, the historical information to lean on, right? That's right. Right. And a lot of times is we just don't know the outcome, you know, the, the halt might not find anything. There's a chance of that. But if you discount that and say, you know, working with the halt lab, they find stuff in 80% of their cases that are significant, that'll change your failure rate by 2% or something like that. And, but sometimes they don't. So let's discount the probability, <laughs> you know, to say, all right, well, we'll get a, um, it's not certain. We're not going to guarantee that we get five major issues that we find, but we have an 80% chance of finding five issues. So let's use that as part of the value calculation. And so there's all kinds of nuances, and but it, I think it's more what the finance people go, you know, if we put $10 in this, we might get 12% interest and, in, you know, maybe. <laughs> so I'm hearing, I'm hearing you say a couple different times that people, reliability engineers would want to do this. And one of them is maybe, you know, right after a project Mm -hmm. or right after analysis, if if you do, you mentioned FMEA, you know, how many did you find and what were the actions that were coming out of that? Mm -hmm. And based on those actions, what do you think, you know, the team saved? You could do that after an initial analysis. And I guess you would kind of keep tally of that within either your own files or within your group, mm-hmm. um, kind of have a group shared. Um, so so you're s- starting to accumulate examples of what those kind of activities are saving the company for particular kind of projects or problems. Mm-hmm. Oh, it wasn't just in the files either. We made bulletin boards. <laughs> we, yeah, you know. so that, that was what I was going to ask you. So then, um, when, you know, so you can use that to pull from that to start making your case for why we need to do this or why this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but then every once in a while, 
did, would you have a, like a big lessons learned at the end of a project or now you're mentioning a bulletin board. So I'm curious about that. What did you put on the bulletin board? It was these one page value statements. So is in, and it was the slide deck. So anytime there was a rumor of, you know, what good is your team and, and Glenn would ask me that directly in, in our one-on-ones. So what good are you? It was kind of coming up to review time. And he goes, I got to write something down. So what good are you? You know, what have you done useful lately? And and I pulled out the value statements he'd been making us do. And he goes, okay, this adds up. I can use that. But he also used those slides and that, that tally to show the value of this team of engineers. So when it was competing for resources or, you know, are we going to get disbanded or anything else? He could say, this is what we did. There's, here's the, in our customers' statements, this is how much value they ascribe to what we did. And it was, and so it was immensely powerful. And whether it's on working directly within your organization, it's, you know, an annual at the uh, postmortem for a program, you can say, well, we ran a halt test and we did an FMEA. And it's like, all right, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's nice. You took a bunch of resources, you broke stuff, you know. Uh, but if you add, and this is the estimated impact it had in dollars, it then it starts to add up and make sense. You have to kind of connect the dots for a lot of people. Of what, what does, you know, implementing a, a control chart on a line actually translate into? It takes resources. It takes time to do. Yet you get a benefit, but sometimes it's just not clear to many people, especially when it's running well and, and we're identifying out of control circumstances and fixing things quickly. It becomes invisible. It's just part of the regular process. So there's, it's a technique I learned the hard way. I resisted, uh, and I found many people resist the idea. But you have to. It's that tooting your own horn, especially when you have the people you're working with, you know, document how much it saved them. You know, what's in their, in their words, what is finding these five things early in the program worth to you, you know, and can you quantify it and then kind of help them figure that out? Um, so what were some of your reasons that you didn't initially like it? It was the squishy finance stuff. It was... You know, I like the precision if if it's, we don't know that solving this problem would have translated into exactly 1.2% field failure rates. Mm -hmm. We didn't know that. And we know that we fixed it, we think, but we're not sure. So there was kind of a number of times where it was, uh, you know, I, we, we move the needle, but we don't really know by how much. This is, well, estimate it, you know, what's the team say the difference was or what they expect the difference was because they actually invested in changing the design. They wouldn't do that unless they thought it would be a benefit. Well, how much of a benefit? <laughs> and ask them. And that was new. That was just, we just went and did analysis and we would, you know, run data sets and we'd run experiments and then hand them the report. And he goes, well, that's not good enough. It has to actually make a difference. And, um, that was the heart, the part that I, as an engineer, I was very happy with creating a Bible plot and mailing it off to somebody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's obvious. It's useful. Like, no, 
Uh, I mean, and one of the things we wanted to do uh, is an example is we wanted to do uh, another year of this internal conference and add, and it was mostly engineering stuff, but then we wanted to add a major reliability track to it. And I was pushing for that. And we needed, I don't know, $50,000 as seed money to get it started. And he goes, if I give you $50,000, what's the benefit to the company? And it's not just $50,000 because you have, you know, 100 engineers, um, uh, travel expenses away from what they do day in, day out. It better be worth more, way more than what they are being pulled away from. So Mm -hmm. you need to quantify it. And I was like, well, how do you quantify going to a conference? What's the value of networking? What's the value of, of, you know, training, basically? And so he suggested, and which I think is brilliant, and I've been doing it ever since, is that instead of asking, you know, people at the conference or in the training, um, how was the conference? Were the chairs comfortable? Was the food good? Was the coffee hot? You know, was the lighting okay? Could you read the slides? Stuff we typically see uh-huh. <laughs> as, as a postmortem or getting feedback to the conference organizers. Instead, instead, set the expectation that you're here to learn something, that you actually do something different with that knowledge. So we want you to write down what you plan to do when you get back to work that you learned here. And it could be from a hallway conversation or from a presentation, you know, or, or from a panel or whatever. But what is it? you're going to do different when you get back and write it down. We want that feedback. And so we got a list of like a hundred different things people were saying they were going to take away. And then about two, three weeks later, we called them and said, did you do it? How did it turn out? What difference did it make? (laughs) You know, about half hadn't done anything, but there were about 10 people that made major differences. And, and it more than paid for the conference for everybody. And so we were able to document, you know, tens of thousands, of, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of differences. And, and it tallied up pretty quick. And so we then pursued, you know, contacting more people and that attended the conference. What did you take away from the conference and what difference did it make? And it was solving immediate problems to changing internal processes to, you know, working with different vendors or all kinds of stuff that they were able to quantify, you know, millions of dollars of value. And so we said, right, that makes it worthwhile. But in the proposal part, I really had no idea how to justify that. It's, <laughs> you know, so we, he let us go gather the information in a different way, in a very specific way to say, well, what did you take away? What was the value? And, and so it, that's when I really became a fan of, yeah, you, you have to, in order to keep reliability in many other engineering pursuits out of the shadows of how useful it is, is you got to actually write it down and share that information with other people. Yeah. And that involves making estimations mm-hmm. and then talking with people and following through on, um, the benefits that it had. Yeah. And, you know, some, a lot of the times the information is readily available. What's the cost per unit that fails, right? You know, what's the cost of a warranty claim? We, the finance people know know those numbers and you can just ask them and find out. And what's the, uh, the loaded rate for an engineer. So if you save a week of engineering time, 
for a person, what that is multiplied times something, uh, and it's commonly called the the loaded um, cost of an engineer. It's the salary plus the overhead uh, kinds of thing. And finance teams often know those kinds of numbers, and even managers typically know those numbers. And so you can go find a lot of these bits and pieces of these equations. And then the ones you really don't know is it, was it a 1.2% change or was it a 1% change? You can go with the lower number of it, or you could say, you know, it's got a 50% chance. It was a higher number and then run out the calculations and cut it in half. And it, I found that even then it was often a very large number, the kind of impacts we had. Now, this is all um, proactive ways to kind of quantify the the hidden benefits of reliability that Mm -hmm. if done right, people don't see it because it didn't happen. That's right. Now, when we started talking, we were talking about the hero, that there's a fire, there's a firefighter, um, everybody's all hands on deck, you know, we're um, solving a problem. That's right. Um, So do those costs ever in you know in your projects did those costs ever get um accumulated or called out and oh, yeah. compared against yep. what it took to prevent it in the first place yep so there was one of the divisions that i worked with that over a span of 10 years they had 13 all hands on deck kind of events And they would actually create a unique tracking code, project code for it, and track all the engineering time and and samples time and, you know, scrap that was created and recalls that were done. It it all got tracked. Now, the minor ones that didn't cause a plant shutdown or, or a recall weren't. They were more common, but they didn't get tracked in a deliberate way. So the, okay. we had really clear data for 13 major events over the last decade or so. And so we use that as the upper realm of it. And he says, now if we implement these different changes, this is what this team was trying to do and we got involved with it, is we need to reduce the frequency of those major events from more than one a year. If we can do one every two years, we cut it in half kind of thing. Yeah. And if we cut it in half, we know how much those major events cost. So we can say we saved on average that, you know, that average value of those major events. If we cut, you know, here we can run those numbers pretty easily. But the more difficult cost was all of the other issues that came up. And so we started doing surveys of the engineering managers and says, how much time does your team spend on fixing problems from past, you know, from fielded products. And this was everything from com- servers to calculators across HP. And it was almost universal. It was like 25% of their engineering time was being spent fixing things on products they had finished, quote, air quotes, finished. Oh. And so he said, what would it be worth to you to have 12% back of your engineers? He says, well, I wouldn't have to hire five more people. You know, I, I could get more done. I could get projects done on time. I could do this, I could do that. And we started adding all up and making the case across the organization saying, you know, if you get it right to start, don't resist the FMEAs and the reliability and quality type stuff that we're proposing and build that into your design process. You will get your engineers back 
because they're not fixing problems that they should have avoided in the first place. And a lot of the engineering directors were very happy with that. And so we, we were using that angle as a, a way to proactively help people change the, the way they approach designing products. Hmm. And did that, um, did that help promote any of the project managers from getting the reliability and quality folks involved earlier or that had to be separate? You had no. to do other well, things for that. Well, we did other things too. Uh, one of the most yeah. effective things was we changed the bonus structure so that it included warranty. So if, if you launched a product, you don't get a bonus because it launched on time, right? You get a bonus because it launched on time and you met or exceeded your warranty uh, problems right? or did better on the failure rate than you thought you did. Or you did what right. you planned basically or better. And that would take a year for those numbers to come in. So they wouldn't get their bonus on a project until after the results were in from the field. And once that got rolled out, the phone, the phone just rang off the hook for people wanting to get us involved, the reliability and quality people involved early in the program. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that's probably a subject for a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's beyond the uh, the hero's journey. Yeah. No, and the hard part is, is that, yeah, you can you don't want to waste a, a good disaster. And you don't want to say, I told you so either, but you want to no. quantify it. What does it cost? Because that's in your hip pocket saying, well, if we have a recall, we have numbers now, actual numbers now, how much that costs us. So if we ha- reduce the chance of a recall by 20%, we can claim 20% of that cost as savings. And, you know, yeah, it doesn't hit the the fan or the financial sheets uh, unless it actually occurs. But because it didn't occur, we didn't have to spend that money needlessly. And so we have that money back in the bank to do things we expect to do or want to do. And so, it, yeah, I got better and better at it over the years with so many different companies, but it I agree with you is that a lot of what we do is unless you quantify it, it's just hidden and, and it doesn't do us any good or give us any credit for all this work and skills and talent that we bring to, to, to programs. Yeah. I, I would imagine that would also be a good recruitment tool for people that might want to work in reliability and quality. Um, because instead of this black box mystery, I don't know what they're doing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> these are these are the ways that we're affecting the the process that people are taking to design products or launch them, mm-hmm. and the difference that we can make when working with the team. Yep, and it's a lot more fun knowing that what you do makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely more rewarding. Yeah. And sometimes I wish I would have got a percentage of the savings, but uh, it didn't work out that way. They didn't put that into your bonus structure, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, we do a lot of stuff that is, and you know this, is we do stuff that does really make a difference. And and the trick is is to connect the dots, help other people understand, well, how much of a difference does it really make? And so it, it's fun. It. it and I know firsthand it's a challenge to get started doing this and get used to the idea and making these arguments because it's it's not statistics, <laughs> it's not right. engineering, it, uh, but it is a very valuable skill to have. And uh, no pun intended with that. <laughs> and so, so to just get started is just to 
start trying. That's right. Right. When you, when you finish up an analysis, give it a try and practice it. And yeah. Now, did you find you? You said your manager asked you for this a lot, so it sounded like you had a lot of mentoring from your manager on it. Well, it's closer to whipping. Is uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, to be honest, it was a lot of coaching and mentoring and and helping us figure out what questions to ask and how to structure this stuff. Um, yeah, we learned a lot um, on it. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it but it, at first the whole team, we were all like, why are we doing this? This is taken away from our engineering stuff. And then, you know, after a year or two, it was like, hmm, okay, now I get it. This really makes a difference. Just get started. Create, you know, yeah. what'd you do? And what, what impact did it have? Did it change the failure rate, for example? Okay, well, finish those numbers. What's the cost of a failure times how many products could have failed and tally it up and say, that's how much money got saved, how much fewer warranty uh, costs occurred. And if you want to get fancy, then you say happy customers tell other people and you sell more. So go talk to the marketing team and say, what's the cost of acquiring a new customer? And if that gets reduced because customer satisfaction goes up, they probably have an estimate for how much that's worth. Calculate it out. <laughs> And it'd be easier to do it right after, like, I mean, you finish a project and then, you know, within a, a couple days or a week, you try, just try to capture those numbers. That's right. Because if you, if you walk away from it and then you let it sit for a while and then you go back and try to recreate it, yep. that's going to be a lot harder. Yes, very much so. Um, and then when you get really good at it, you do it in the proposal stages when you're laying out plans and doing all that stuff is we're going to do the stuff that's going to have the best return on investment. What's the, what's going to have the most impact on the organization. We often talk about that, but if you use the actual expected savings or cost avoidance, uh, as the priority scale of it, but you have to have some skill at connecting those dots. What is an FMEA worth? Well, it's not just a good thing to do. It's a valuable thing to do if you run out the numbers on it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we chatted about, I could talk about this all day long, I guess. Oh, really? <laughs> you went from, you went from not wanting to do it to, uh, why do I need to do this to talk about it all day? Yeah, no, I definitely did. And it's, uh, thanks to Glenn and that experience I had in the organization of, of just, witnessing how incredibly valuable it is. And then over the years with clients, it's, it's a, a, it helps an organization understand the value of doing this stuff in a very quantified way. Right. And you, and there's more to it, obviously, but there's, uh, it just takes practice. I think the way you phrased it was just get started as you finish a task or a project. Well, what difference does it make? You know, if you're handing in a report, ask them, what is this used for? What did you, how much, how valuable was this information to you? And if they're making a million dollar decision, they might tell you this made the decision for us. It saved us a million dollars one way or the other, you know, whether we ship or don't ship, for example, or whatever. And you can take credit for that. 
And then you go back and you rerun the numbers to make sure that you were right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's that. No, it, we always want to do things right anyway. That's right. That's right. Um, so anyway, if you know, you're listening to this, and I know you've heard, some of you have heard me talk about this topic, this subject before, but what I'm really interested in, though, Diana, is if people tried it. You know, what did, what's your experience, if you're listening to this, what's your experience with with being very clear about the value of the reliability work you're doing and very clear. I mean, in numbers in, in, in savings or avoided costs or time savings or things like that, that are of value to your organization, you know, what's worked and what's not worked. What areas do you have trouble with? And you can get in touch with, with us at uh, ascendoreliability.com slash go slash S O R. Or uh, Diana and and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. And um, so I, I say, Diana, I'd say go. Let's go do something valuable today. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> All good. Thanks so much, Diana. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.